Hey there, and welcome to Hormonally Speaking. I'm your host, Christine Garvin, a functional health coach. Each week, I speak with an incredible guest expert on all things women's hormones. We're here to empower you to take back control of your body, health, and well-being, and to learn about the latest in research and solutions when it comes to getting your hormones happy. No part of this podcast should be construed as medical advice, and we always recommend working with a professional practitioner to figure out what's best for your body. Now let's dive in with today's guest. Hey there, and welcome to this week's episode of Hormonally Speaking. I'm Christine Garvin, your local functional nutritionist. Well, maybe not local, but I am here speaking to you via the podcast. You're either listening there or you are part of our new subscription offering and watching this via video. So I just want to explain really quick what the subscription is all about. Basically, you know, there's some things that I want to talk to you guys about and share with you that um, may be, you know, a little bit more controversial than what we have just on the regular podcast platform. And so the subscription offering is going to give you a chance to kind of dive deeper. There's going to be opportunities for you to ask questions and get them answered. While I cannot give any medical advice because A, I'm not a doctor and B, even if I was a doctor, I wouldn't be allowed to give medical advice to a non, you know, uh, client or patient. Um, I will be able to kind of, you know, do some deep dives for some of the big topics that you guys want to know about. Um, And, you know, there's definitely just so many interesting approaches to supporting your health that may or might may not be accepted sort of in the mainstream culture. So I want to be clear that I'm not um, off in conspiracy theory land on this podcast, but I do understand that there's many approaches to health and things that you can do with your health that are not necessarily um, accepted um, yet because that's kind of how these things go, right? Like things actually, what's funny about it is a lot of these things actually have been around for a long time (laughs) in other cultures throughout the world and have been used. Um, And now we're bringing up them up here in Western culture. And so many times people are like, oh, it's not proven yet. And it's like, well, let's actually look at how much this other culture has used that thing or, you know, discoveries of new things that are really working well for people um, from a supportive nutritional um, nutrient lifestyle, et cetera, place. Um, and because, you know, we basically have to take control of our health. We have to empower ourselves to do what needs to be done because if you're living in America, and I know this is true in other countries too, although um, in general, other countries have better healthcare systems than America does. Um, but here it is not a healthcare system. It's a sick care system that's extremely expensive that a lot of people can't access. So, you know, my goal is to give you the tools to be able to take care of a lot of those, you know, basics on your own, because if you take care of the basics, a lot of the big stuff is going to be taken care of too. And, you know, go to the doctor when you have an acute issue for sure. Um, But when we're talking about chronic stuff, if you go to sort of a regular doctor, they may or may not really be able to help you versus if you have a functional doctor, it's going to, you know, probably be a different story. Point is the, um, the new subscription offering is going to be doing all of that, offering you just deeper dives, question and answer opportunities and lots of other fun things. So if that's something that you're interested in, you can go to um, the subscription button in Spotify. I'm not honestly sure if you can do it through iTunes. (laughs) I'll look into that, but you can definitely do it through Spotify and access this episode, the video version of it. Um, And then I'm shooting to do somewhere between two and four extra episodes a month for the subscription offering. Um, And I'll start reaching out to people to, um, to all of you to start sending me questions and things like that. um, And doing some other special fun things. So Would love it if you would become a subscription member and there's just going to be lots of um, perks that come with that over time too. Okay, so today the reason that we are doing the video portion of the podcast too, I usually do upload the video to YouTube in case you didn't know, but I wanted to have this video connected 
um, you know, via the podcast directly, because I'm actually going to share with you some of my most recent uh, serum or blood lab tests. I just got it done last week. If you're watching this, you can see my nice um, <laughs> bruise from the blood draw because ever since I had my surgeries, my veins are like, nope, we're not interested in giving any blood. We're not going to do it easily. And so this was um, my vein blue there. So that was fun. A lot of times I actually have to get the draws from my hands now. So all of you out there, especially some of my clients who hate blood draws, I can understand that now. Used to not be an issue for me at all, but it is now. So I understand. Anyway, so I got that drawn, um, got my lab results in. I want to be really clear here up front. I am not diagnosing myself. I am not treating myself. I am talking to my doctor about these um, results. And I'm also putting together, as I do as a functional nutritionist, patterns that I see of nutritional deficiencies and also guidance towards further testing that may be needed. So this is something that I'm sharing with you so that you can start to understand patterns on your own testing and so that you can talk to your doctor about the things that you're seeing. Because a lot of times the problem is we have this fabulous thing that most people get done yearly, these blood labs, you know, obviously if you go to a doctor, obviously if you have insurance to cover that, so that's not everyone. But if you are, you know, in that um part of society that can get these done. And even if you don't have a, a regular doctor, you know, there are opportunities now to kind of get these blood labs done. Um, but these reference ranges are so huge that it's not really telling you if you're healthy or not, right? Because if you think about those ranges on our labs are about 95% of the population. So you have 2.5% on the high end and then 2.5% on the low end, right? And that is where a doctor will diagnose you with a pathology, right? So obviously we want to be within that reference range, but so many times clients come to me and say, yeah, my doctor said everything looks great. And the reality is if you are in that reference range, but on the higher end or the lower end, even if you're in that reference range, that's a good chunk of the culture that isn't really healthy, right? In America, at least like in these lab numbers are based on the overall population. So we really want to be in that sort of tighter middle place on most markers. It's not across the board. Some of them you want to be on the lower end, but you know, in general, it's that sort of middle spot that you want to be in. And so when you're higher or lower, it can tell you um, in many cases, some nutritional deficiencies that are happening or just ways that you can change the way that you're eating, maybe um, some supplementation that may be supportive to your system, right? Um, and again, I look at these patterns that happen. So it's not just about one marker, it's about multiple markers. And I'm pairing some of those together for you today so that if you are looking at your own labs and wondering like, hey, this doesn't look, you know, this looks like something maybe going on here, you can take that to your doctor and say, you know, I have some questions because I learned that, you know, these may have some indications that I can work on and I would like to do that. So I am going to share with you the, if I can find it, give me one second, because it's always looking and then here we go. Okay. I'm going to share the screen here and you can see my little um, spreadsheet with a bunch of different numbers on here, right? And um, I'm going to go through sort of the basics of what each of these kind of mean um, and also how they're all paired together. And so that you start to understand kind of what's really important to look for. Okay. So for myself, um, for, sorry, that comes out like that sometimes for myself and my clients, you know, one of the biggest underlying things for your health is how your blood sugar is doing. That can tell us so much before it ever gets to even pre-diabetes, much less full-blown diabetes, right? You really want to pay attention to these numbers in a much bigger way than I think sometimes people recognize or realize. So um, I always, like I said, look to my blood sugar numbers first. 
but not just glucose. So let me explain. Glucose is a great marker and it's pretty much on every lab, you know, that, that people get done. And it's going to tell you your blood sugar at draw time, right? So here's another thing. Doctors used to tell you to fast before taking blood labs, but I've learned over recent times that that is much less of a recommendation. Now, a lot of times doctors don't mention that you need to fast or don't think you need to fast. And if you don't fast, your blood glucose number um, can be, you know, kind of high. If you've eaten something, something, I'm going very Southern today with my <laughs> word choice. Um, when you eat something in the morning, say, you know, at 8am and then you get your blood drawn at 11, that is going to impact your blood glucose numbers and not give us a good view of what they really are, you know, after you've had no food for a while. So with fasting, you can do water, you can do coffee. I recommend not doing coffee because I see that it impacts glucose numbers and, you know, other, some other numbers too, but that is something that they say that you can do and still technically be fasting. But in general, you want to fast for eight to 12 hours before you get this test done to get an accurate reading. So if you look at my glucose numbers here, so I've gone back to 2020, September of 2020, and then I also got uh, labs drawn in uh, September of 2021. And then I went ahead and did a faster lab draw this year than normal. Usually it's yearly. Um, and the reason I'll tell you is in case, I don't know if I've shared this on the podcast, but I had COVID end of December, early January of this year. And luckily it was very mild. Uh, you know, of course I did lots of things to support my system, but was just generally lucky that it was a mild case. And I have not had any long COVID symptoms, except I will say that my stomach has been, you know, a little bit off. It's not crazy bad, um, but definitely a little bit off. And of course, you know, in, in my functional nutrition brain, I think, okay, well, I need to do some gut testing. But the reason that I decided to do my lab test first is because I wanted to see how um, some of these, you know, different things were showing up. I was also concerned that maybe my thyroid was impacted post-COVID. And the reality is when you have an intense virus like COVID come around, um, it, even if it's easygoing during it and you don't have long COVID, um, it still can impact what I call your vulnerable systems, right? And we all have our each individual uh, vulnerable system. So it could be one system. It could be multiple system for me. It's going to be my gut forever, right? Because I lost half of my colon and I lost eight inches of small intestine. There's scar tissue there. There's all kinds of things that are just, it's the reality, you know, of the rest of my life. It's when stress impacts me, it's gonna hit my vulnerable system. Um, when a virus comes in, it's going to hit my vulnerable system for someone else. It may be their liver for someone else. It may be their bones, you know, for someone else, it may be heart. So it's really good to understand what your personal vulnerable system is. And a lot of times, um, that can also be genetic too. Um, but you know, not across the board, but if you notice the things that you tend to have the most issue that system first, you know, that's what you're going to pay attention to. So anyways, I decided to get these labs drawn because I really wanted to see um, sort of where my immune function was going. And I'm always, you know, interested in getting to see where my blood sugar is. And so here we are with these, um, you know, yearly for two years and then six months later labs. And I'm ha very happy with my glucose. It was 77 in uh, 2020 and then 83 in um, 2021 and then 83 again this time. And the reality is most labs will say, you know, up to a hundred is fine. Functionally, that's not really the case. We really want to see blood sugar you know, some people say under 90, between 70 and 90, my personal opinion, and based on, you know, the research of some of the amazing functional doctors out there, the 75 to 85 range is kind of the best place to be in. Under 75, you can start to like show some signs of hypoglycemia and then, you know, above 85 and particularly above 90, we're starting to see maybe possibly a little bit of blood sugar dysregulation. 
um, my HbA1c, which is also a really important blood sugar marker to get, and it's not always included on testing. So I often recommend to my clients to ask their doctors to add that on because this is HbA1c is going to show you your blood sugar over three months, right? So that glucose is literally just telling you when you get that blood draw, what it was at that moment. Your HbA1c is going to tell you, you know, uh, an average essentially over those three months. And while this isn't perfect, right, because you could be sort of lower one day and then higher one day and it averages out to look okay, it still is going to give you that sort of broader vision of what your blood sugar is looking like. So you can see in 2020, I was at 5.1. And then again, in 2021, I was at 5.1. And then this time I was at 5.3. And those are all well within functional range. Um, I believe lab range, not all the time, but a lot of labs, it will be 5.7 where they consider you to be pre-diabetic. Um, from a functional standpoint, we really got to see it below 5.4 to be, you know, in a really good solid place. So although I'm fine and I have been fine, I do sort of pay attention to the fact that my blood sugar, um, my HbA1c did go up a little bit to 5.3, um, could be, you know, a few things. Um, but really I kind of see that. And I think to myself, well, I need to focus a little bit more on sort of reining in, my diet. I may have been sort of eating more carbs than I um, sort of maybe realized. Um, you know, I do keep my diet low sugar in general, but you know, things happen here or there, and maybe that's happening more than I really have noticed. And so, kind of just focusing, refocusing on that. There's also sometimes where things, viruses can impact our blood sugar, you know. So, um, it's just something I'm going to pay attention to in terms of my diet and making sure that, you know, I'm eating plenty of protein, that I'm eating lots of veggies um, to really just support good blood sugar. Next up is insulin. And this is something you rarely will see just on a regular comprehensive lab. And so it is another thing that, especially if you've had any blood sugar issues that I recommend people ask their doctors to add on to their labs. And, but the thing, a little caveat here, when you do want to add on a marker to your lab, I always tell clients to check with their doctor first to see if the insurance will cover it because, you know, the insurance is different, different insurances cover different things. And some of them will, um, you know, need certain codes from your doctor in order to cover it. Um, you know, like if you do have sort of this on the edge, like pre-diabetic thing happening, then, you know, a doctor can maybe code for you to get that insulin covered by insurance. And a lot of times, you know, the people that work in your doctor's office that deal with insurance will have a pretty good idea of what insurance covers and what it doesn't. Um, not all the time, but I always recommend checking with them first. And then also checking into if it doesn't cover it, like how much it's going to cost you. Um, some markers are cheaper than others. There are options to be able to order your own blood labs at this point that can be a lot cheaper than insurance not covering it and it going through your doctor. So there's lots of different options out there. So my insulin was at 7.4 in 2021. I didn't have it tested in 2020. And then it is down at nice 2.9 this time. So um, 7.4 was fine. You really want to see it sort of below eight um, and not below about two. So that two to eight range. Um, so I was happy to see it come down to 2.9 this time. Who knows what was going on last time with that 7.4. Um you know, sometimes we just don't know, but we want, that's why we have these ranges that we keep it in. But the thing that's so important about insulin, in my opinion, is that it is telling you, right? You're, so when you eat sugar or carbs, you know, or food is broken down into glucose, it needs to get into your cells, right? It doesn't need to hang out in your bloodstream for too long because you would literally die if it did. It needs to get into the cells in order to be used and for your body to function. And insulin is basically the guy who comes knocking on the cell's door and says, hey, we got some sugar that needs to make its way in. And the cell's like, okay, 
opens the door, says, come on in. And insulin's like, sweet, did my job, right? And this is your pancreas is what is producing that insulin in order to get that done, get that sugar into the cells. But what can happen when we're having too much sugar in our blood too much of the time, more and more insulin is being produced, trying to like knock, 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 knock at the cells. And the cells may be like, mm, we had we got enough sugar in here right now. You know, insulin, we're not opening the door because we can't take it anymore right now. And insulin's like, we got to get the sugar out of the bloodstream, you know? And so your pancreas is like pumping out more of that insulin in order to get that sugar out of your bloodstream. So obviously when you see a high insulin number, we know that there is some form of blood sugar dysregulation going on, that that insulin is like trying to get that sugar into your cell and the cell is saying no for some reason. So we want to make sure that that insulin number is lower. And if it's not, then really work on diet um, and blood sugar support. And there's, you know, particular nutrients that are very helpful for blood sugar support that I won't go into to today, but I will talk about another time. Finally, on this panel um, is LDH, and this is something that is primarily used for um, other body parts that I won't get into today, but the um, low end of the spectrum can show us if you are possibly having issues with hypoglycemia. And so I was on that high end barely in 2020, like 200 is about the high end. And then I was actually, even though we don't have the arrow here, I was actually on that low end. I was below uh, functional range at 127 in 2021. So there was some level of hypoglycemia happening. In 2022, just recently, I'm at perfect, um, barely into, but at functional um, optimal level with that 140. So that made me very happy. So overall, you can see my blood sugar is doing pretty well. And again, I share these with you so that you can understand what are really helpful, useful tools for understanding your own blood sugar if you are having issues in that arena. And like the biggest, like the biggest symptom of having blood sugar issues is energy, like ups and downs during the day. So it's not just blood sugar necessarily in those situations, but that is part of it for sure. And you have to work with your blood sugar in order to stabilize your energy and for all of your body systems, you know, to work properly. So that is what you want to look for. Minimum, I tell clients, um, looking at that glucose and that HbA1c, that insulin is going to help a lot to see that too. Next up is immune system markers. So here you can see lots of arrows on my spreadsheet. And this is actually what I was very interested in seeing, considering I do, um, you know, as I mentioned, I'm having some gut stuff. And as a quick reminder that the majority of our immune system is in our gut. And so a lot of times when we see, you know, elevated or even depressed immune markers on the serum labs, that is an indication that there may be something going on gut level. So some kind of either acute or chronic, you know, um, dysbiosis or possibly parasites or just something that your body is like kind of have to consistently fight. Right. Um, so I looked at these different numbers. So you can see my bun was low, Actually, every single time I have had it checked the last three times, nine, eight, and seven. And then my globulin um, was at low, uh, lab low, actually, at um, in 2020 at 1.8. And then it came up into just being functionally low. You can see the lab low I mark with two arrows and then functionally low is with one arrow. Um, and then it went back down to lab low this time. Um, and the total protein was also slightly functionally low 2020, again, the same in 2021, and then it dropped even more this time. Um, and the thing about your total protein number is that that is actually a combination of your uh, albumin and globulin. So interestingly, my albumin is fine. My globulin is what is having more issues, and that can have to do with some chronic, um, you know, issues happening with my gut fighting something. It's not it across the board, but that can be an indication of that. And so I see these numbers and, you know, a lot of times people say, oh, protein, total protein. Is that just like about how much protein you're getting? And it's really not that simple, right? Because it's 
these numbers are kind of more about immune function and liver function, um, but it can be an indication that you are not, you know, in some cases not getting enough protein, but in a lot of cases not absorbing enough protein. And you probably aren't absorbing enough protein if you're eating plenty of it because your hydrochloric acid is low. And here's the deal with me. I take supplemental hydrochloric acid. I've had to for, you know, a long time now, but I've been noticing, I'm like, oh, I don't feel like it's working as well. Um, and I'm needing to kind of up my dosing. And so this kind of backs up like, okay, there's probably something more going on here. Why is my hydrochloric acid low? Why is it what I'm taking not working as well? So I'll continue on and then I'll answer that question. Um, if you look at my white blood cell count, it was fine in 2020 and it was fine in 2021. And this time it went up and is functionally high. Um, so that white, white blood cell count, you know, is a pretty indica good indication of some kind of, especially when it's higher of some of your body, like finding something in more of an acute sense. Um, and then I look to the neutrophils 65. So it was elevated in 2020. Uh, not a surprise. I know from doing a GI map, you know, around that time that I was fighting some stuff and came into perfect, you know, to, into functional range in 2021. And then here I am high again. So yet another indication of something, a little bit of a battle going on in possibly in my gut. My monocytes were fine in 2020. They rose a little bit functionally in 2021. And then finally they rose again this year. Um, so I went seven, eight, nine. So it's not crazy, crazy high, but um, that can make a huge difference, right? Seven to nine. And so here I am thinking, okay, well, there's another marker that is showing some level of immune issues happening. Finally, this is kind of, you know, more of a random thing that doesn't fit necessarily in the picture of traditionally of gut dysbiosis when that's phosphorus. So phosphorus is more about bone health, right? So we really look at phosphorus and calcium and magnesium to kind of see um, how bone health is going. So I was fine in 2020. I'm not sure why this is low in 2020 one, because that shouldn't be. So I was fine in 2021. And then I dropped down. Actually, it's actually lab low this time. So that, you know, is of a concern to me. And there is something, you know, I'm looking into the aspects of possibly um, having some um, parathyroid stuff, just pairing that with my calcium. But Phosphor, low phosphorus can also be about not digesting and absorbing it well from your food. And I want to like really hit this point hard that so many people, you know, don't understand, well, why do I need to take HCL? Like, why is it such a big deal to um, focus on absorbing food? And this is a good example why, because it could be just as simple as I'm not absorbing the phosphorus from my food even if I'm eating plenty of it. And then that's going to impact levels. And in this case, I paired it with the immune system stuff because all of these markers that are off can possibly indicate H. pylori, right? And I will say that I had H. pylori when I did my first GIMAP a couple of years ago, um, you know, as I was actually training on it and I did it on myself and it was not necessarily a surprise to the extent that, you know, my <laughs> uh, gastrointestinal catastrophe is what they diagnosed me when I left the hospital, you know, that, that the blowing up of my gut would show up in elevated H. pylori, would show up in a lot of sort of, um, dysbiosis in terms of bacteria, opportunistic bacteria and things like that. But I was also kind of surprised I had H. pylori because I don't have acid reflux. Acid reflux is one of the biggest indications of the possibility of H. pylori. Um, and I can take a ton of HCL and it not create any kind of acid for me. So that's a little strange when you have H. pylori. So I was a little surprised when I saw it. But now that I kind of understand too what these markers when put all together like this, that bun, the globulin, the uh, total protein, WC, uh, neutrophils, monocytes, and then this phosphorus, all can possibly indicate some H. pylori. And the reason that that phosphorus fits in, in terms of me not absorbing enough, not having an H enough HCL, 
is that H. pylori hates HCL and it actually diminishes your own HCL production in your stomach. And so there's an aha moment, right? When I put all this together, of course, I don't know this for sure. This is just something that points me to, okay, now it's time for me to take another GI map to determine if I actually do have H. pylori, but you know, this is kind of a good sign that that's probably what's going on. And I don't have that telltale sign of acid reflux because I never have, but that doesn't mean that I don't have H. pylori. And luckily, you know, I work with clients on this all the time. I have a really good thing that I use, um, you know, that is recommended for people with H. pylori. And so I'm excited to find out if that's what's going on with me and then be able to utilize this thing that I've actually had to utilize with quite a few clients because it is pretty prevalent. And I just want to add on that I did, you know, look at my creatinine number two, which has actually always been on the lower end. Um, this is wrong. <laughs> Sorry about that. It should be a, a arrow going down. Um, and there actually should be multiple. I'm going to change that right now. There should be multiple down arrows. And here's what's interesting is that this has been true for years for me. Um, you know, it's even been lab low a few times. And I remember asking my doctor about it and they were just like, oh, it's no big deal. Um, but this is something that can be connected to methylation issues. And methylation is such an important aspect of our body. And it's something that really helps to break down and remove uh, toxins from our body, right? And you may have heard of something called MTHFR, which is a genetic, um, sometimes called a genetic mutation, but we'll call it a genetic variation that can impact how well you methylate and that you need more of certain B vitamins to help in that instance. And I'm going to talk about this a little bit more in a few minutes, but it's really fascinating because I just recently learned that that low creatinine can be connected to some impaired methylation. And so there's a little something going on in my mind wondering, I haven't yet tested genetically to see um, if I have MTHFR. And I will say that I look at my homocysteine um, levels, which are a helpful indication on if you are B12 or folate deficient, which are some of the B vitamins that you need for methylating. And my homocysteine has always been fine, but there is something else I just learned recently that is interesting when it comes to that. But we're going to save that here for um, a little later. So next up, let's look at the liver. This is also so important. If you've been listening to my podcast, I mean, you've heard this before. You're going to hear me say it again. The liver is extremely important when it comes to hormone health. And I feel like this is overlooked a lot. And so I really, really pay attention on here when I see, you know, liver markers, and we'll talk about the different ones um, to kind of see how the liver is doing overall, right? I mean, there's so many different ways that the liver can impact our health. This isn't going to tell you everything. You know, I've had, for example, my liver markers looking great on blood labs, but then I take the Dutch hormone test and realize that, you know, it's not doing a good job of metabolizing estrogen, for example. So this isn't going to give you the full picture, but certainly if you do have some indications of liver issues going on here, and this is, you know, way before it becomes like a major concern that your doctor would say, okay, we really need to do something around your liver. Um, this is just when there's some elevated stuff going on that you want to make sure that you do some better liver support, you know, nutritionally, with supplements, et cetera. And so what we have here, of course, the first two are your liver enzymes, the ALT and the AST. And, you know, these in general, I think I'm honestly not positive off the top of my head what the lab um, goes up to, but I believe it's sort of the mid to upper twenties for, um, 
for both ALT and AST. So it's definitely lower from a functional perspective. In 2020, you can see my ALT was 17, which is great functional range. And then it popped up out of functional range um, just a little bit in 2021. And then it came back down into functional range now. So of course that made me happy. Um, my AST has stayed in functional range at 12, then it hopped up to 17 and then 12 again this time. And, you know, some people might wonder like, what's that fluctuation about? I mean, obviously, you know, depending on what's going on in our lives, everything's not going to be the exact same each time. Um, you know, slight fluctuations are normal and fine. Um, but, you know, if you start to see these higher numbers, especially if that becomes a trend, that's when it's an issue. Just a one-off is not necessarily an issue. Um, and obviously, like even in 2021, it wasn't like my ALT was extremely high, but still kind of like I talked about earlier with my HbA1c being a little bit higher than in the past. I'm just keeping an eye on that in a different way. And you know what can impact the liver the most is what most people want to know. And you know alcohol is a big one. Obviously chemicals in our environment um, are a big one. Chemicals in our hair care products and our face products, um, you know, how much you are around different um, pollution, all those kinds of things, um, cigarette smoke, medication, who knows, maybe at this point in 2021, I don't know, I'd taken more Advil for a couple of weeks. It's hard to say, you know, I don't remember specifically anything going on at that time, but and needless to say, I'm happy that it went back down to 19, um, my ALT and that my ASD actually went back down to 12 too. Next up, we look at toady, toady, <laughs> total Billy Rubin. I just, you know, sometimes can't talk. So excuse me about that. Um, what Billy Rubin is, it's actually a pigment that is made from the breakdown of red blood cells and it's passed through the liver to be excreted by the body. Um, and the thing is, it is more of a liver sign when it is high. So, you know, if you have high bilirubin, it's like the liver isn't processing that bilirubin as well. For me, as you can see, um, high hasn't been an issue. Um, it is actually low, it has been my issue. So it was 0.4 in 2020 and then 0.3 in 2021. And then it, I, I just um, actually deleted this arrow because that shouldn't have been there either. It's actually in perfect, perfect functional range at 0.5 this time. So I was happy to see that. And, you know, what it can uh, mean when it's low, it's not so much a liver issue. It is more um, possibly an oxidative stress issue, but I just included it in this liver section because it is often looked at or used as a liver um, marker, you know, so that you can sort of round out what you're seeing going on with your liver. And then finally, GGT is actually a really good marker for glutathione, which is our master antioxidant. Um, and the liver uses quite a bit of glutathione in order to metabolize or detoxify things, especially in phase two liver detox. It's really important for that estrogen detoxification. Um, you know, if you take the Dutch test, there's actually a glutathione marker on there. But again, this is what's helpful about these blood tests is that we can see, you know, some indications of these things without having to do that test. And so um, I'm very happy that my GGT has been in functional range for the last um, three times I've taken this test and continues to be. And I will tell you that I take um, NAC, uh, which is the precursor to glutathione or glutathione pretty consistently um, because I do think after my surgeries and all of the drugs and you know CT scans and all the things that can sit in, in your body and in your tissues, I need that extra um, detoxification, metabolizing of all of those things um, that, you know, when things are stored in your tissues, when your body has a chance to, it will actually mobilize those 
out of your tissues to move them out of your body, right? And there's different ways that you can mobilize things, but you want to be in a pretty healthy state if you're going to start to mobilize those stored toxins because it can wreak havoc, right? You want to make sure things are being processed well. And so that is why it's so important to use things um, like glutathione in those situations to help metabolize. If you have mold issues, glutathione is a big, big uh, needed support for many people. So that's just a little side note right there. Finally, uh, not finally, but next is my thyroid, um, which I always pay extra special attention to because as I mentioned, I've had thyroid issues probably honestly since my teens. Um, and I just didn't realize it until my, my late twenties. And I was lucky enough to have a naturopath when I lived in California. Um, actually he was like the third naturopath that I had. And he was the first one to say, mm, yeah, you definitely have subclinical hypothyroidism happening. He's like, you know, in this situation, he was able to actually put me on thyroid medication, natural thyroid medication at that time. That was the first time any doctor had offered to do that for me. And that's when I really started to understand, you know, how messed up my thyroid had been, even though my numbers looked okay, you know, and we've talked about this before on the podcast. I've talked about it um, in presentations. There is a presentation in my online school that you can access at christinegarvin.com. That's all about the thyroid and adrenals. And uh, my uh, co-host in that presentation, um, Vashti breaks down, you know, how important it is to get a full thyroid panel and to understand what these different numbers mean in the thyroid panel. So I won't go into the whole thing right now. It's a great explanation on there if you want to check that out. But basically, a lot of times doctors will just test TSH, and then that may reflex what they call reflex to T4. So what that means is if your TSH is high in terms of what their reference range is, then it will automatically also test your T4, which is the actual inactive thyroid hormone. So TSH is actually a pituitary hormone. So that's pituitary in your brain that talks to your thyroid to produce both T4 and T3, um, but mostly T4. And the majority of our T3, which is the actual active hormone, that's the one that actually does the things that you know, gets into the cells and works as the thyroid hormone, has to be converted for the most part from T4. And that's actually where a lot of issues come in for a lot of people that they'll have enough T4, but the conversion to T3 isn't happening. So, you know, we look at these all together. It's also helpful if you can to get the total uh, T4 and T total T3 and then reverse T3 to make sure that, you know, your body is not basically um, not using that T3 and, and, like pushing it down a pathway where um, it's not usable, that T3 essentially. And then to make sure you don't have antibodies because antibodies can indicate an autoimmune disorder. You know, that's something that you would have to talk to your doctor about. So anyways, my TSH, as you can see here, um, was 3.79 in 2020. And I would say that a good chunk of my testing over the years, my um, TSH would be between three and five. And in a reference range on a regular lab. I think they've actually lowered it now to 4.5, but before, you know, the high end was five or even 5.5. So I always fell within quote unquote normal range, <clears throat> but um, functionally we want to see it between, between one and two. So that's a big difference, right? It's a huge difference. So even 3.79 can be a sign of some thyroid issues going on, some hypothyroid issues. And so I can, you know, see my subclinical hypothyroidism there. I had, um, it actually go down to two for the first time ever. I don't think I've ever seen it at two <laughs> in 2021. And then lo and behold, this time was 1.7, which I was actually pretty surprised about, to be honest with you, but I will say that I had started taking a new thyroid glandular, um, not too long before this test. So it might be helping my, um, my TSH, which is great. Uh, T4, as I mentioned, is that inactive thyroid hormone. This has always tended to be fine for me, right? So it was 1.32, 1.25, and then 1.34 this time. So that's all within functional range. So that's that inactive thyroid. So basically like my thyroid's doing its thing. It's just my pituitary has had to kind of like scream at it to do its thing, right? So that shows that's kind of why it's called subclinical because it's not obvious. My thyroid was still producing enough of the thyroid hormone, but 
here's where you can see issues have happened for me for a long time. My free T3, as I mentioned, is that active thyroid hormone that has to be converted from the inactive T4. My free T3 has always been on the lower end functionally. Um, so 2.4 in 2020, 2.5 in 2021, and then 2.6 this year. So this is the highest it's been. Um, so, you know, a regular doctor might say, hey, your thyroid looks amazing. But I know even though my TSH is functional and my T4, free T4 is functional, my free T3 is still not where I want it to be. I want it to be above three. And, you know, one of the ways that you can support that conversion is selenium. And I have recognized that I need quite a bit of selenium, um, you know, but I, that's something that you need to obviously work with someone to determine most of us though, aren't getting enough selenium in our diet. So starting off with three Brazil nuts a day can give you your RDA of selenium. And then some people need more. And usually, you know, it is like about a hundred milligrams. Um, I believe it's in milligrams for selenium that you would have a day. Um, and not more than that, but you know, where I recommend working with a practitioner to really figure that out because we need different levels of things, right? Um, my total T3, um, and T4, uh, to the totals of both of those, uh, are still lower though. My total T4 came up this time. My total T3 did drop. Um, a bit, and I'm not quite sure why that's going on, but all in all, there's still some support that I need here for my thyroid. Luckily, my reverse T3 has always been good, and very luckily, I have never had um, antibodies show up, which is kind of amazing considering I think it's something about like 90 to 95% of people who have hypothyroidism um, actually have Hashimoto's. So I'm very grateful that that hasn't happened yet, and hopefully it stays that way. Next up um, is the uh, possible B12 folate deficiency. So I mentioned a little while ago about that creatinine number, right? And how that can possibly, when it's low, indicate some methylation issues. Well, I have consistently had functionally high MCV from 2020 till today. So 96, 96, and then 95. Um, I also had a functionally high MCH and then it was normal in or uh, functionally normal in 2021, but then it popped back up to functionally high again this year. And that can definitely indicate some B12 or folate deficiency. Um, you know, it's not crazy high numbers, but high enough that there can be something going on. Here's the thing is I take a B6 complex because I know from other testing that I have been low in B6 for a long period of time, both the Dutch and the oats test told me that it's actually the oats on the Dutch, but then I had a separate full oats test that told me my B6 is low. Um, and that B6 complex does have, um, methylated B12 in it. And um, the methylated version, you know, um, of folate. But I'm thinking that maybe that isn't enough folate, possibly in that particular supplement, or I'm just not absorbing it as well. Um, so I looked at my homocysteine number, as I have talked about before. And the thing is, my homocysteine number has actually always been in functional range 5.4, 5.9, and 5.1. So normally, when you do have B12 or folate deficiency, um, it can show up in that homocysteine number, especially the B12, excuse me, and just actually the folate too. But um, I just recently read that you actually want your homocysteine number to be above six, like the six to nine range. And when it's low, it can also indicate some methylation issues. So either high or low can indicate that. Um, so that made me think, huh. I've always been thinking that B12 and folate weren't necessarily an issue for me in a big, big way. Um, 
you know, based on that homocysteine being uh, lower numbers, but now I'm like, oh, maybe it's actually a little too low. So I am interested to see switching to a different B12 folate supplement where the folate is going to be higher in there. Um, if that is going to work better. And I might do a liquid version too, to make sure that I absorb it well. And here's a little side note. This isn't going to impact everybody, but um, we absorb particularly B12 in that lower part of our small intestine. And I don't have that lower part of my small intestine anymore, right? It's um, the last eight inches of my small intestine, uh, which is called the terminal ileum. Um, I lost 30% of it. So I could still be absorbing, but maybe not absorbing as well. And so in that case, you know, liquid may be a better option for me than pills, that kind of thing. Um, or even if I, you know, subliminal or, um, I'm not sure if there's a topical option for B, but anyways, I'll probably try a liquid here and see how that goes. Um, I should write that down so I don't forget. Finally, we have, um, I didn't put all my minerals on here because these are the only ones that showed an issue. It was my potassium was low, functionally low this time at 3.8. And then my calcium actually dropped two um, out of functional range into, um, you know, uh, below functional range at nine this time. So, um, okay. So I have some minerals that are off and that's not highly, highly surprising to me. I also feel like, um, you know, I mean, stress impacts our, our minerals a lot. Uh, COVID I think impacts our minerals a lot. Um, sometimes, you know, this is the, the key of not overdoing supplementation, the same supplement for a long period of time, because you can throw different things off. Um, there, there's some different ideas I have, but in general, I'm like, okay, there's some mineral support that I need to have happen, um, right now. So, you know, the big thing that I'm starting off with for that potassium is just doing some adrenal cocktails every day, making sure I get that good potassium from an adrenal cocktail. Um, um, and an overall mineral support supplement is what I'm going to do right now. And then we may get into some more nitty gritty over time. Um, I will probably be doing some, I'm going to be doing some training on HGMA hair analysis. So we'll see where my minerals look like on that too. And that's something that I will be offering here down the road to my clients. So that is a quick overview of my labs, my um, most recent serum labs. And once again, you know, you need to not figure this stuff out by yourself, right? You need to work with a licensed practitioner to understand what's going on for you. But I wanted you to get an idea of the patterns that you should look for with these different um, markers that come up, because it can be really helpful to understand the bigger picture. So I hope you learned some of that today and we'll definitely talk more about this, uh, these and other labs in the future as part of the subscription option. Woo, just going right over my words today, just running, running, running. Um, but anyways, I hope that you enjoyed it. I hope you learned some stuff and I will see you soon.